Saharan dust journeys north. It can be 20,000, maybe 30,000 feet. That's up at the level of the jet stream. And when that happens, it can be transported over continents. Swallows, a natural sign of spring. They fly faster than the spring, up to 200 miles a day on migration. And the difference between the spring equinox and equilux. The word equinox is derived from the Latin for equal night. It's Friday the 18th of March and you're listening to Weathersnap from the Met Office. Hello, I'm Claire Nazir and this is Weathersnap, the insider's guide to the week's weather headlines. This week, a huge cloud of Saharan dust pushed north across Western Europe. Ski resorts in Spain were described as looking more like the surface of Mars as slopes and skies turned orange. And here in the UK, there were numerous reports of cars covered in dust. Anton Muscat is the squad lead on hazards here at the Met Office and has been tracking this latest event. If there are strong winds in and around the Sahara Desert, these can lift sand from the surface and that sand and dust can then get suspended in the atmosphere. And once that sand and dust is in the atmosphere, it's at the mercy of the winds at many different levels up through the atmosphere. And of course, once that happens, then the winds can transport the sand and dust potentially many miles away from the Sahara. So it can go to many other locations. How often do we see Saharan dust across our skies? It tends to happen several times a year, actually. So between four and eight times a year. So it's not uncommon, but it's not that common either. Normally, this dust travels across the Atlantic, I presume. It doesn't normally or usually head north. Well, it depends. It it all depends on the wind direction. As with so many things in meteorology, the wind direction is critical. So once in the atmosphere, uh, you know, the, the sand and dust is suspended, It can be relatively low levels, a few thousand feet, but equally it can be much higher, 20,000, maybe 30,000 feet. So that's up at the level of the jet stream. And when that happens, it can be transported over continents. So it becomes a much more sort of widespread phenomena. But it doesn't necessarily need to go out into the Atlantic. Sometimes it does, but we get uh, Saharan dust in the UK when there are strong winds up from the south. So the winds will come up from the Sahara across Spain and France and then eventually dust gets transported to the UK. It can actually go out into the Atlantic initially. It might move out into the Atlantic and then it can be picked up by southwesterly winds, which will take it up towards the UK again. And so we can get dust from a a southwesterly direction. So tell me typically the sort of evidence that dust is in the air. There's obviously physical evidence, but we're looking at this on, on lots of different levels and obviously from space as well to work out where it's going. Yeah, so there are a few things that might give uh, the average person an idea that there's uh, there's dust in the atmosphere. So, for example, the visibility might be reduced. It might be quite hazy. See, you know, it doesn't look so so clear outside. So, so that's one way of, of indicating there might be something in in the atmosphere. But you can get hazy atmosphere when there's just pollution generally. So that's that's not a sort of the, the clincher, if you like. Um, but you also, if there's enough sand in the atmosphere, you might see the atmosphere tinged with reds and yellows. Uh, and this is particularly noticeable if the sun's quite low, so sunrise and sunset. Uh, then it, the, the, the way the light refracts around the particles, it can give it a real red and, and yellow tinge. And it can actually lead to some really, really good sunrises and sunsets, really quite spectacular because of that sand. There are some health implications to Saharan dust being in the atmosphere as well, I presume. 
Well, I think essentially sand and dust is particulate matter, really, really small particles that are suspended in, in the air. And, and as with any particles, if there are enough of them and you breathe them in, then the particles can aggravate your airways and, and your lungs and it might cause irritation. So I think if you have underlying health conditions uh, and some that spring to mind, COPD or, or asthma, and there happens to be lots of Saharan dust in the atmosphere, then you, it, I think it could be considered to be a hazard to you. So a lot of this dust pushes across the Atlantic towards the Caribbean and even the Amazon. And there are benefits to these ecosystems receiving this dust. That's right. So Saharan sand and, and dust contains certain chemicals, phosphorus, for example, and iron. And these can act as a fertilizer. So they can be deposited on soils a long way away from the Sahara and they can act to sort of enhance the soils, the soils in those areas. Anton Muscat. In other global weather news, the remnants of Storm Celia continues to produce thunderstorms and gales across eastern Spain, with rough seas likely over much of the western Mediterranean into next week. Another burst of very cold air is extending across southeast Europe through the weekend, with yet again temperatures widely 8 to 12 degrees below normal and the risk of heavy snow for parts of Turkey and Georgia. And eyes are also on the Bay of Bengal, where thunderstorm activity has the potential to develop into an unusually early tropical cyclone. As the system tracks northwards, there is the risk of heavy rain and strong winds, affecting Bangladesh, Myanmar and northeast India into early next week. The arrival of dust here in the UK coincided with some very rainy conditions earlier this week. The wet weather has now been replaced with sunshine and some real spring warmth. But what signs of spring do you look for at this time of year? For author Tim D, it's the sighting of the first swallow. I spoke to him earlier as he scanned the skies of Somerset. Tim, it's said that a swallow doesn't make a summer, but does it make a spring? Well, they certainly do for me. Uh, my first swallow is always um, an amazingly important moment for me. There have been a, a few in, in Britain this week, mostly in, in the southwest of England. Uh, they're beginning to come. These are still early birds, relatively speaking, though. I mean, we shouldn't really be expecting them for another week or so. They're obviously migratory birds and they travel from South Africa and journey northwards to the UK. Is that correct? Yes, they do. I mean, the swallow is a barn swallow, to give it its proper name is a Europe-wide species. In fact, they also occur in Asia and, and North America. But the European swallows uh, spend their springs and summers with us, as we know. But then all of them leave the country, the continent, right about the end of the summertime, September, August, October, and they head south. Uh, most of the British swallows go to Southern Africa, some of them to West Africa. Uh, it's an extraordinary thought, 8,000 miles, I think it is roughly, from Bristol to Cape Town, my two homes. And those tiny birds make that journey. Every swallow that we see this coming spring will have already flown twice across the Sahara. In the show this week, we're covering the Saharan dust. Is it something that impacts swallows? The birds will certainly be affected by them. Um, I know that swallows have been caught in Europe with traces of Saharan sand woven into their feathers, effectively. And they fly just a few feet above the ground. They hunt for insects as they go. But that also means they're exposed to all sorts of daily weather conditions, uh, adverse weather and things like that. They're quite clever, though. I mean, they will stop flying if they know bad weather is ahead. Uh, unfortunately, if they're having to do that in the Sahara Desert, 
then things aren't so good because the daytime temperatures there are 40 plus degrees Celsius. The crossing of the Sahara, even when the weather's good, is extremely challenging for the birds. I'm intrigued to learn more about the fact that swallows tend to follow isotherms. So as a meteorologist, we're very much into our equal lines of pressure or temperature. Is that correct? You see them flying generally, in effect, at the speed of spring. If spring arrives in, in Europe, and we know it moves north roughly at the speed of about two miles an hour, uh, if you set off walking at a 10 degree isotherm point in the dawn of a day in the springtime in southern Europe and walk north, you'll be walking at the speed of the spring, basically, by the time you get to the place you stop in that evening. The breaking green wave of the season will have kept in step with you, and swallows do the same. They fly faster than the spring, up to 200 miles a day on migration, but they leave their wintering grounds at the right time when the world weather is good in order to arrive at the spring places in Europe at exactly the right moment when the, the flies are appearing uh, and um, food is good. So Tim, obviously we're talking every day about climate change. It impacts all of our lives, wildlife as well. How have the swallows changed their patterns, their migratory patterns because of the shifting climate? Well, it's very obvious, and this year apparently more obvious than it has been before. The British Trust for Ornithology has reported 100 sightings of swallows in Britain in January and February. That's unprecedented. And so birds are staying longer because it's mild enough for them to make a living out of flies through the wintertime. So you can see that in some ways as a positive adaptation. It's also quite a scary one because it suggests that other birds and other swallows might be getting things wrong. You know, swallows are now coming to Britain at the point when the flies that they need to eat to start a family are already past their hatch by date. Tell me how we can help, how we can enhance their lives whilst they um, holiday in the UK through the spring and summer months. We've traditionally welcomed them. I mean, it's regarded as a blessing, a good luck to have a swallow come into your barn or your shed or into your garage. But too many people now maybe would find that uh, upsetting, disturbing, dirty. I mean, the birds make a bit of a mess. They're, they're mud builders, they're brilliant mud nest makers, but the mud falls on the roof of your car and people don't like that. Or it falls on the floor of your kitchen if you're lucky enough to have a swallow in your kitchen. Sparrows are suffering in the same way because our eaves are too tidy now. We've got plastic coated guttering and, and eaves in our roofs that mean there's no little nooks and crannies for the sparrows to get in. So let's be a bit more dirty in a way. We need to keep our, our barns and our sheds and things open so that they can breed. It's, it's very bad luck, especially in countries in Scandinavia, apparently, to shut your door against swallows. If you see a swallow flying around your barn, you must let it in. Otherwise, your cows will stop giving them milk and your farm might burn down. So um, and beware. Also, apparently the Danes think um, if you're trying to a man, a Danish man is trying to uh, woo a woman who's not accepting his advances, he must crush a swallow's heart and pour it into her beer. And she will then uh, accept, him, <laughs> accept him as a future husband. Well, that's uh, so good advice. <laughs> <laughs> if ever I want to be proposed to by a Dane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. De but deeply connected to the good life. That's the point. Yeah. You know, swallows equal good life. That's amazing. Tim, you're just a font of knowledge. I'm sure not just about swallows, but I'm really pleased that we were able to talk to you today. And um, good luck with finding the swallows in Somerset. Yeah, it's going to happen any minute now. I can feel it. Tim D. You can follow Tim's progress watching out for the arrival of swallows by visiting his Twitter channel at TimD4. As Tim mentioned, 
climate change does appear to be affecting the behaviour of swallows and the Woodland Trust is inviting people to send in observations to get a better picture of migration patterns. You can submit details of your own sightings at their website, woodlandtrust.org.uk. This Sunday is the advent of the vernal equinox, which marks the beginning of astronomical spring. However, around a similar time is the spring equilux. So what are these and how do they differ? Here's Ada McGiven. The equinox is defined as the instant in which the midpoint of the sun crosses the Earth's equator. This occurs twice a year in March and September. Following the March equinox, the northern hemisphere begins to tilt towards the sun and astronomical spring begins. This is known as the spring or vernal equinox. At the same time, the southern hemisphere will start tilting away from the sun because this is their autumn equinox. The word equinox is derived from the Latin for equal night. However, day and night are not precisely equal on either the spring or autumn equinox. This occurs on the equilux, the date of which varies depending on location. Typically, the equilux is around two to three days before the spring equinox and around two to three days after the autumn equinox. There are two main reasons for this. First, imagine the sun were a single point in the sky. On the equinox, the time taken between the sun crossing the horizon at sunrise and then again at sunset would be exactly 12 hours. However, the sun doesn't appear as a single point in the sky, but as a large disk. And sunrise is defined as the moment the top of the sun's disk appears above the horizon and not its midpoint. Later, sunset occurs when the top of the sun's sphere appears to dip below the horizon. The extra time in which only the top half of the sun is visible above the horizon adds around two and a half to three minutes of daylight at mid-latitudes. The date of equinoxes also vary year to year from 19th to the 21st of March and 21st to 24th of September. A year isn't exactly 365 days long, but just under 365.25 days. This causes the equinoxes to drift later by around six hours every year until a leap year occurs. Well, as we move from longer nights to longer days, how's the weather looking? Here with the outlook for the next few days, Alex Deacon. Sunny skies up and down the land on Saturday. It is going to be a cracking day if you like blue sky and spring sunshine. It will be a little chilly first thing, but not as frosty as Friday morning because there will be more of a breeze blowing and that'll keep the temperatures up. And that, that breeze is going to be fairly significant. Southern parts of England, South Wales, especially along the coast, will still feel quite fresh, even though temperatures will be above average. And the same goes for Northern Ireland, Western Scotland. It's quite windy here at times on Saturday. But generally, Saturday is simply a sunny day. And temperatures responding, as we've been hearing, uh, the days and nights pretty similar in length at the moment. So the sun is getting stronger and stronger and it will lift those temperatures from starting off in low single figures to peaking into the mid-teens, 16, maybe 17 Celsius inland. As I said, though, that breeze will make it feel a little cooler than that in southern parts of England, South Wales, Northern Ireland and Western Scotland. Sunday is a dry and a bright day for the vast majority. High pressure is still nearby. However, 
We are going to see more clouds on Sunday generally and certainly because he's staying in the southeast. Quite a lot of cloud and at times that may well provide a few scattered showers. Away from East Anglia in the southeast, though, again, uh, most places will be dry and bright with western areas seeing the sunniest skies. A bit more of a breeze coming in from the North Sea, so a cooler feel for eastern Scotland and eastern England. And temperatures generally on Sunday a few degrees lower than Saturday's values, but still mostly a touch above average for the time of year. And there are signs that things may well warm up once more as we go through next week. Thanks, Alex. Just before we go, Martin Bowles is here with last week's highs and lows. Here are last week's extremes recorded between Monday the 7th of March and Sunday the 13th of March. The highest temperature of the week was a spring-like 16.8 degrees Celsius at Chertsey in Surrey on Thursday. The lowest temperature was minus 6.6 degrees at Reedsdale Camp in the Northumberland National Park early on Monday. The largest daily rainfall amount was 37.4 mm at Dalwini in Venetia on Sunday. The sunniest place was Tibbenham in Norfolk, where 10.6 hours of sunshine was recorded on Thursday. Thanks, Martin. That's it for Weathersnap. I'm Claire Nazir. Editor is Adrian Holloway. Weathersnap is a podcast by the UK Met Office. For the latest weather conditions where you are, download the Met Office weather app.